0: Welcome to Work of Fiction, the podcast that analyzes the fictional organizations you see in movies and TV. Today's episode, Pied Piper from Silicon Valley.
1: Work Fiction.
0: Paula Cizik here with my colleagues,
1: Kim Perkins
2: and Jane Garza,
0: we're members of Nobel, an organizational design firm that transforms company cultures. Every month, we take a break from helping real organizations change to discuss fictional leaders and organizations, what works, what doesn't. And most importantly, we talk about the simple tools that they and you, our listeners, can implement to make the workplace better. Today, we're going to be talking about Silicon Valley. And Kim, would you give us a quick summary?
1: When coder Richard writes a superior algorithm that compresses data, he's flung into the high-stakes world of tech startups. Will he and his ragtag team become a new unicorn, or will they be just another piece of roadkill on the information superhighway? Spoiler alert, Silicon Valley just finished its sixth season, but we're only going to be looking at season one. All right, so... When this
0: show came out in 2014, it felt like it was a little bit of a tipping point for startup culture. People were still kind of enamored of tech and all it promised, which gave Mike Judge and his team an opportunity to really skewer the culture. But there was also rising skepticism. Keep in mind, this was maybe like six years out Mm. from the recession. Everybody was still looking for essentially what was next, how we were going to kickstart the economy again. How would you say that the public perception of Silicon Valley, the place and the philosophy more than the TV show, has evolved in the
1: last six years? Such an interesting question. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that um, in th- the beginning of this show, people really will, were still thinking that tech was definitely making the world a better place. And now we're at a point where we're like, but is it though?
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I I guess. So in the beginning, I think this is, you can definitely see it in episode one of season one, tech and startups were like back to the original American dream, right? Like you as an individual can build yourself up and become a billionaire with your smarts, your great idea, and some people to back you and and make it a reality. Um, And I think that has morphed over time Probably largely because of things like Theranos and WeWork and these big scandals of like things falling apart, people that we look up to and then seeing behind the scenes like, oh, actually, it's not as um, it's not as great as it's been built up to be.
0: Yeah, I would actually say going back to your point, Kim, if there's one refrain or theme that keeps coming up in the first season, it's this mockery, honestly, of the idea that startups are making the world a better place.
2: We're making the world a better place through Paxos algorithms for consensus protocols.
0: And we're making the world a better place through software-defined data centers for cloud computing. A better place through canonical data models to communicate between endpoints. A better place through scalable, fault-tolerant, distributed databases with ACID transactions. Do you need to make the world a better place, right? When we're working with organizations, whether they're startups, whether they're large organizations, we talk a lot about what your purpose is. What's the why behind the organization? So what is purpose, and why does it matter? Yeah.
1: yeah. So purpose, um, funny you should ask. Part of my dissertation was on purpose. <laughs> so the thing with purpose is, purpose is just an idea that um, we know why we're doing something and it contributes to the greater good in some way. So it means that just saying that we're doing this because somebody will pay us to do it is probably not really having enough of a purpose that people can get their minds around and have it be motivational. And it's something that we've found that especially, you know, uh, people in a millennial generation have been said to want to have a lot more purpose at their work and not just be uh, earning a paycheck or, or keeping up with the Joneses as might have been okay for their parents.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it also I, I think the practice of like writing down a purpose and figuring out what your company's purpose is more and more common and it's really hard to sit down and write out a purpose and not have it be lofty. You're not gonna write down like to make better paper and make money off that paper it's 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 gonna end up sounding lofty no matter what and and the make the world a better place purpose is vague enough to where everyone can use it because if you could be making the world a better place by feeding the homeless or by making better mattresses that help people sleep better at night.
0: So that is my follow-up question. Do you have to cure cancer in order to make the world a better place? Do you have to be solving the world's poverty problem in order to revolutionize commerce?
1: From my perspective, no. I mean, speaking from a psychology perspective, when we think about purpose, we're thinking a lot about pro-social motivation, and that's the idea of helping other people. And that can be anything from making your colleague's life a little bit less uh, shitty, to actually saving the world. And it doesn't really matter how lofty or grand it is. And it certainly doesn't have to be in um, in a way that is outside uh, of the bounds of commerce. Anything will do as long as you feel like you're helping.
2: Yeah, and I think part of the vision of tech was like, it'll make the world a better place by removing a lot of, by creating more ease. Like it's easier to call a car and it's easier to order food online and all these other pieces that do make your life a little easier um ideally and i I think that was the initial vision is like how can we how can we use tech to like muscle up everything we already do i saw some quote i think it was from bill gates that was like it's going to be amazing to see what tech can really do 20 years from now and then next to that quote was like a meme that was 10 layers deep that someone had built a very intricate meme um which is what tech is being used for (laughs) often in kitten videos
0: yeah yeah um I think it's interesting you actually use the term vision when you were just describing that. There's a lot of confusion around purpose, vision, mission, values. Sometimes I personally confuse them and I say some, something like mid-vision or fusion. <laughs> just vision. mush it all together. It's the same thing. <laughs> yeah. But it's not. There are distinctions. What's the difference between purpose, vision, mission, and values?
1: Well, purpose is more about why you exist in the world. So just like we sometimes say, what's your life purpose is why are you here on earth for a company? That would be what does the company do that is the reason for having a company? So um, it's good to start off with something like we believe.
0: Okay. So at Nobel, we would say that we believe that everybody has a right to meaningful and impactful work. So that's our
1: purpose. Exactly. And that gives a a big enough, it should be big enough that it can exist in multiple contexts.
0: Yeah. We're not going to achieve that next week unfortunately Mm -hmm. we're trying but not going to happen in the next two weeks or so (laughs) yeah maybe by february that's ambitious Uh, i like it
2: uh okay so moving on vision what is the vision so vision is the difference we'll create in our customers lives or in the larger world when we ultimately realize our purpose so it's what will be different basically once we accomplish that purpose um some examples might be from Amex, we will become a company that cares and supports our own people like no other. Airbnb, we will help you belong anywhere. Got it. And then we have mission, and
0: people will make fun of this all the time. Everybody has mission statements. It seems something that, you know, the the executive team goes off to the woods. They do an ayahuasca ceremony. They come back with a mission statement. So what is a mission really supposed to be?
1: A mission is really supposed to be... um. to to help define what your market position is. So um, we're trying, so something like be the most dot dot dot. And so in this case, it's for Tesla, it's like be the most successful and respected car company in America. Um, For Amazon, it's be Earth's most customer centric company. And so really what mission does is it tells you the way in which you want to do it and you tie it to your market position.
0: And then we have our values, which are, again, usually stuck up on a poster that nobody ever looks at in the bathroom. But tell us about what
2: values are or should be, Jane. So values are the, the principles and norms that will help you accomplish all of these things. So how will you actually make progress together? Um, some examples, HubSpot's is obsessed over customers, not competitors. So there's an actual like, behavior in there. They're asking you to focus on one, not the other um in Amex it's develop relationships that make a positive difference
1: and the thing with all of these is you know Paula as you mentioned people sort of decide them once by a small group of people usually at the top of the company and stick them on the wall and that is absolutely not the way to do this this is not you know they're, they're, they they the what the way to make this Um, useful for people is to let people at all levels of the company wrestle with it and have a hand in creating it and then also to use it as a yardstick to see if you're doing what you said you were doing i think there's a perfect
0: scene that illustrates what not to do in silicon valley there's a there's a scene where jared holds a senior own senior management only meeting in the kitchen
1: guys i guess you didn't see the sign we're actually having a meeting here Congratulations. It's sort of for management only.
0: So yeah, I think that's a perfect example of how not to design your your company culture. Uh, we've actually done some studies into this. A lot of companies will go out and survey their entire team. I mean, we're talking like thousands of individuals to find out What words do you associate with our culture? What values do you think we should really be pushing forward? How do we localize those values in some cases? So it's really important to get your employees involved in defining the culture and not having it just be a top-down mandate. When you're starting out, it's really tempting to focus on the product first because that's what matters, right? You have a set amount of money and you have a burn rate and you need to figure out, can we make a demo before we go bankrupt? So it's, a, it's really tempting for startups to think, okay, let's take care of our product, let's get to the demo, and then we can go back and fix the culture. But why is this a dangerous approach?
2: Um, well, for one, your culture will emerge no matter what you do, whether you ignore it or you foster it. And so when you're ignoring it, or not ignoring it, but not paying careful attention to it, it's just kind of emerging based on the decisions that you're making. And in startups, you're working quickly, you're choosing sometimes working late over sleep and making decisions that might not be as healthy just to get to the point of profit. Um, And all of those corner cutting things can create a bunch of debt, basically, Um, culture debt, and that you'll then have to fix. And rather than starting from a baseline, you're starting from below the baseline to get back up to normal.
0: What does cultural debt look like?
2: So that can look like um, a lot of the time in startups, you're hiring just friends, right? Like that's just an easy way to hire. You don't have a policy around. What are the type of people that we want to work here? And you just keep hiring in friends. And then suddenly you look around and you're like, oh, we have no diversity. I wonder why that happened. Um, so that would be one version. Other version is just not having a clear way to make decisions, decisions getting stuck and bottlenecked, not having ways to cross-functionally collaborate. And so silos naturally develop. All these things that naturally happen in companies, not having a way that counterbalances it uh, to help you work a little bit better together.
1: The other thing is that it's often really is tied into a business's life cycle. So both the number of employees you have, as Jay mentioned, that make make decision making more difficult because you're used to having five people and a lot of shorthand and then suddenly you're 50 people and there's no shorthand and there's a lot of misunderstanding. Um and also just as things um as companies get larger there has to be just be more rules and more bureaucracy or else things tend to go off the rails. And that's a time when, when those habits that you started because you were in startup mode can be can sort of harden into, well, this is how we've always done it, or this is what the uh people in charge expect, and that can lead to a lot of uh unplanned circumstances.
0: Yeah, but Kim I joined a startup, so I didn't have to deal with all that bureaucracy, okay? Like, I don't like working for the man, and I don't want to deal with that.
1: Then you're going to have to go find another startup and not cash in these shares.
0: Yeah, which is true, which Mm -hmm. we actually do see a lot in startups where you get to, let's say, 50 to 75 people, and it stops feeling like a startup. And then there's a lot of turnover because there is a type of person who really appreciates that chaos. Right, exactly. Like, who needs rules? Everybody's wearing lots of hats, and that's that's fine. So
1: people thrive yeah. on that, and that is totally fine. But that's not the same as a developing organization, and that's one of the reasons you see a lot of CEO turnover from the founder, as well as because the founder, uh, you know, the founder has a couple of different hats: the inventor, the developer, and um, usually the innovator. People coming up with new technology, and that that's very much like our CEO founder on uh, Silicon Valley. And then when it gets to a point where it's a well-oiled machine, it just becomes less interesting and out they uh, out they go.
2: Yeah, I think it becomes less interesting for some and more interesting for others. Um, and I think there's like really good pieces to both of them. If they're healthy organizations and healthy cultures, there's really nice pieces to both of them, the chaotic startup land and then the developing company. It's just knowing what the right setting is for you at various stages. We've
0: actually put together a chart which breaks down the different phases for a startup and what questions that they should be thinking of. So for right now, at this at this moment of inception, essentially, of Pied Piper, what are some of the most important things that they should be doing or that a startup should be doing to start out on the right foot?
2: Yeah. So I think a couple important things, especially if you think about the, the season one of Silicon Valley Um, It's really normal for companies at this stage to come to a lot of forks in the road. You know, episode one, he gets asked, do you want a bunch of money or do you want someone to take a percentage of your company and become your kind of um, your guide to creating this into a business? And knowing in advance what your strategy is and what you want to prioritize would be really helpful. I think at this stage of a startup, you're often just thinking about tomorrow because There's so many things that you need to do. So it's kind of like, right now, how do we get to tomorrow? How do we get to next month? Really sitting down and thinking about what's like three years from now and where do we want to get to? Potentially, what's our exit plan and what's our strategy that we're going to say yes or no to?
0: I mean, there is that really great scene in Silicon Valley where everybody is asking Richard, like, what's your vision for the company? It's not just an algorithm. It's more than that. Shouldn't
1: you more than kind of know where you're going? Because that's basically what the CEO does.
2: I do. Sort of. Okay, it's like trying to tell someone how to get somewhere, even though you don't really know the exact address, right? Like, how do you do that? Because you can't just say, go to 415 Elm Street, because you don't even know what that is, right? So you have to say, you know, go straight down that big road and take a right at the weird thing. But you can't describe what the weird thing is because you just know it as a weird thing, you know, in your head. You always have.
0: Is that weird thing in your head an aneurysm? And they're like, well, I gave up. I gave up a steady career, and I gave up my options in this other company. And you're telling me you don't have a plan for what's going to happen. So I think that is a real tension that teams can face is of, of not knowing what's going to happen in the future, but also maybe having some idea of what they'd like to achieve.
2: Yeah, and that's okay. There's going to be so many unknowns, but you can at least get like a, you know, plan A, plan B and loosely start to figure it out. And it'll change, I'm sure, over time, but it'll give you some sense of direction. I think with that too, I would just say like, if we're talking about teaming, team design, culture design, whatever it is, I think the very a very healthy thing you can do right off the bat is thinking about how you'll make decisions. Um, the team in Silicon Valley, the four-person team, a lot of the show is them figuring out what they're going to do and how they make decisions, and it's fascinating. I find it fascinating to watch, um, but I think they can save themselves some time with having like a real process for that. There's so many articles these days about diversity in Silicon Valley and how so many companies struggle with it. The earlier you start, the easier a time you'll have. The earlier you start to recruit in diverse perspectives and listen to them, the easier it'll be to hire diverse people down the road. If you don't start your company with, like we talked about earlier, just friends and referrals of friends, it's much easier to, to ensure that you continue that later on. So,
0: Especially when starting out, it's really tempting to also follow the latest cultural fad, right? Radical candor, scrum, scrum, scrum. We're going all holacracy. But the Nobel philosophy is that every culture should be unique and ideally designed to support whatever you're trying to build. So instead of product market fit, we look for what we want to call culture market fit. Um, we've developed our own framework for identifying different types of organizational cultures. And again, not saying that one is better or worse than the others, but can you guys explain a little bit how we think about these different categories of culture?
1: Absolutely. So there's a really powerful tool for diagnosing culture that's been around for a really long time. It's called the competing values framework. And what this does is turn into, it's a, like a map where you can put all companies based on their uh, habits and their place in the market. So there are some people who are bees, uh, that, and for example, and these are people who are focused on process and perhaps very small margins, and that by having a more efficient process is how you win in the marketplace. Then there's, there's people who are more like elephants where it's all about relationships and hanging together in a herd. Um, and that's where, that's where the competitive advantage is. Other people, uh, we call them birds. And this is where being able to innovate and stay together on a strategy is where they're winning spot in the marketplace. And other people are, um, we, we call them a wolf pack. And that's the people who are focused entirely on results and getting those results. And again, as Paula said, these are four different places in the, um, these are four different flavors of culture that are all totally appropriate at different times. But if you have a wolf culture where in a business where it, it, everything really relies on great relationships, then you may experience a problem because uh, wolves have a small tendency to hunt each other instead of hunting together. And uh, oh. that, that can make things a little difficult. Similarly, if you are trying to innovate in the workplace, in the, in the marketplace, and you've got a very B-focused culture where it's process, 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 um, that can often be a very difficult thing to do. You're not going to get the results you want because you won't be able to change on a dime because if you move one part of that process, people are going to protest. And so that's why we say that you need to have um, culture market fit so that you are have cultural habits in the way that you do the work mm-hmm. that actually benefit the, uh, the outcome that you're trying to get.
2: Yeah, so if you're listening to this and thinking, a couple of these sound like my company, that's probably true. There's usually a combination, but there is typically one overarching uh, lingua franca, which is like the shared culture across the company that you can sense the most. And really thinking about if that overarching one, the way that cross-functional teams interact with one another and across the organization, if that one really matches your market, that's the key.
0: Where does Pied Piper fit? In season one, thinking about what we've seen, how would you guys classify Pied Piper?
2: So a lot of startups will fall into the bird category, the agility category, because you're actively trying to figure out what your product market fit is which means you constantly they talk about pivoting in season one of silicon valley two towards the end
1: we've got a great name we've got a great team we've got a great logo and we've got a great name now we just need an idea let's pivot let's pivot
2: you're actively trying to figure out like where is the energy we built this thing we're kind of getting some interest but what will take us to the next level and actually create a company and that requires so much agility and speed and listening to the customer
1: Yeah, I'd have to agree. There's a moment where it looks like they're to to me where they're just trying to decide if they're going to keep Big Head or not, even though Mm -hmm. he's not a top performer. And to me, that is a are we going to be a wolf pack uh, productivity Mm -hmm. overall culture or are we going to be like stand together and go far culture? And that's what then they chose the latter, even though it didn't work out that way. But that was, a, that was a choice they were making in that direction as mm-hmm. opposed to being more of a wolf pack culture. And all of those questions about whether Ehrlich is going to be on the board or not, those are all very much cultural questions. Because where people get culture wrong a lot is that they think it's add-ons like, you know, ping pong tables and what you're wearing. And it's really about how the work gets done and what your values priorities are. So it's not bicycle meetings?
2: Oh, God, the marketing team is having another bike meeting. Douchebags. Yeah.
1: It's not not bicycle meetings, but you can't take you can't just bolt things onto your culture and expect them to work.
2: Yeah, maybe the bicycle meetings like the what, but it doesn't touch the why. And there's a lot of other ways to get to the why. If if it's like building relationships or we're outdoorsy together, there's a thousand different ways of doing that. I would also, like when we were talking about um, recommendations for what to do this early in a company, I would also say don't get lost in perks and benefits. Think first about what are you... What kind of like cultural cl- career experience are you providing people before you dive down the rabbit hole of snacks and bicycles and ping pong
1: tables? Yes, yes. A lot of that, that's a great point because a lot of people really get caught up in the perks because people are thinking about, you know, trading hours for rewards. Mm-hmm. And, we, and that's even though it's not, again, it's not like we don't do that. That's not really what brings people together. Otherwise, we could have mission statements saying we make a slightly better can than the next person and expect mm-hmm. that to be like a legitimate purpose statement. It doesn't really work that way. So one of the perennial hiring questions that we hear is, well, should I be looking for a
0: culture fit or should I be looking for a culture ad? And I think, Kim, you brought this up a little bit when they're thinking about, well, Big Head, right? Should he be part of the team, even if he isn't necessarily a top performer? Uh, should Bachman, should he be on the board? But I think the the best illustration of this culture ad versus culture fit is Jared, of course. He mm. comes from a far more corporate background and he actually, there's there's one episode where he's starting to implement Scrum, where he's implementing a lot of changes.
1: So from rules-based filtering, we go to workflow, at which point that card is moved from the icebox into the in-progress column, and it stays there until it is ready for testing. Okay, this increases visibility into our team's progress. And that gentleman is Scrum.
0: He He's thinking of maybe bringing in cubicles uh, to make the workplace more productive, So when should you as a company look for culture ad versus culture fit?
1: It's a great question. You know, people have um, looked for culture fit for a long time because people generally like to be with people who are like themselves. And often we don't really know which kind of a feeling we get or, wow, they went to the same school as me or Mm. just or, you know, something that reminds you of that. And that's that's an inevitable human tendency. Uh, as far as making organizations and that, but that also is behind a lot of diversity problems. And a lot of the reasons we do this are not things that actually help the work. They're just sort of random happenstance that we both, you know, grew up in Pennsylvania or something that makes you like a person. Um, And so when we're thinking about, when people say, well, they're a great cultural fit, it often means I'd like to go have a beer with them or uh, they just remind me of me in some way that I can't quite put my finger on, but that's often code for, um, when you say that people aren't a great cultural fit, that's often code for they're a diversity candidate, and we can't think of any other reason not to hire them except we just don't feel good about this. Mm-hmm. And that uh, that's where people often get into trouble. I mean, I often say to to our clients, if you are if you just can't put your finger on why you don't like this person, there's very possibly that there is some um, implicit bias involved in that.
2: Yeah, I I would add that. It's hard. It's really hard to not bring culture into the conversation um, because you want to feel like this person can join a team and have a healthy working relationship with the people around you and maybe yourself. So I understand why it happens so much. I mean, that's why bias creeps in so much in hiring in general. But I would try to think more about like their principles. If they're coming into an organization and they're like, I want to turn this 10 person startup into a corporate environment next week, Maybe that's not the right fit because their interest and strategy and direction is just wrong for what's happening next for the company. But if it's, I want to help this company scale because I really believe in the mission and I think scaling looks like X and you guys have a similar vision in that, I think that's a that's a good start for that conversation. I also think like treat it as a conversation, not a test. So if you're going to go into an interview and literally have things and that you're going to test someone on and wonder how they're going to respond and then give them scores, I don't think that'll work out for you. I think it'll turn into a very biased decision-making process. But if you started off as a conversation, meaning literally asking them, what's the type of culture that you would like to work in? Oh, this is how we might be different. How would that affect you? Like just having a full-on back and forth, I think that you'll get much further.
0: I don't think there was anything near a detailed conversation like that when Jared was brought on. But I think it, it is an interesting point because he's definitely the opposite of the rest of the team in terms of culture. And yet Mm -hmm. I think it's clear by the end of the season that he has added real value to the company in that he does know how to put together a business plan and he is organized and and helps get the team, even if they don't necessarily like it, to be more productive. And so I think it is important to realize that even if it's not necessarily the right culture fit, and maybe it isn't necessarily the culture you would would like or that you would want to write down. Um, But it might be the culture that you need to adopt in order to get where you want to go. So in the very last episode, Pied Piper, they pull it off and they are ready to start expanding and becoming a quote unquote real company. We have been brought in to consult Richard. Monica brought us in because obviously Monica knows about us. She's, She's quite on top of things. What advice would we give him as the next step?
2: Uh, I talked about this a little bit earlier, but I think the first thing that popped up to me is that scene in season, or in episode one where Richard is like, he's like, I don't want to just be another Hooli. We're going to just do it. And they're like, oh, that's Nike. Let's just think different. Uh, don't think different. That's Apple. Uh, th-
1: um, let's just let's just do it. That's Nike. Man. I know that's
2: Nike. Yeah. Like he keeps saying slogans from other companies because he doesn't have his own vision or like next step for his company. My first thought would be try to think about that, like get the team together and really think about what does three years from now look like? It's really easy to say what you don't want to be. It's easy to say we don't want to be Huli, we don't want to be Google, whatever it is. But thinking about what you do want to be will help you get some direction in your strategic decisions.
1: Yeah, you know, so much of the time when people are starting up, it's about – The technology. And I don't say that just for tech companies. I mean, the thing that we do better and doing the work and the expertise involved. And I think it's really tough for people to make a transition to thinking about people and structure and all of this kind of more abstract parts of organizing a business. So um, I, I would say that even though they're a pretty lean team, to be able to have those conversations, you might need to have a partner for that rather than trying, expecting that people can just do that all interiorly. Because because what people do, and again, we've seen this when people get into trouble with their startup culture, is that they're focused entirely on how the work gets done um, in terms of you know, the mm-hmm. technical expertise, and they're really forgetting about the people part, and that's what comes back later to bite them. So if you can't do it internally, and I don't think these guys can, honestly, and I think then you, you might need some external help with this. So, not to sound like uh, an advertisement for our services, but this is why people use our services. Honestly,
2: yeah. Well, they're all they're none of them have been leaders. It's yeah. not like any of them is coming from Absolutely. leading an engineering team or any other sort of team. And they're about to. I mean, as the show progresses, they're about to dive into that. So, yeah, right. some outside help is definitely needed.
1: You know, it's really interesting with this series because as I was reading about it, they get so many. They have like two hundred consultants from Silicon Valley on this they research what they're doing so thoroughly and so much of it is is cued by things that really happen to people mm-hmm. you know with somewhat obscure details and they said some of the things that they've really actually witnessed happen in silicon valley are so um fantastically satirical on their own that they can't use it in the show because it's too broad
2: <laughs> i believe it i believe it i mean we've heard crazy stories yeah that i feel like sound made up Yeah, and seen crazy stories. This is actually the second
0: thing that we've seen from Mike Judge Mm -hmm. and discussed on the show. The first, of course, being office space. Mm -hmm. And now, so that's the like corporate 90s slash early 2000s vision. And now we're seeing the 2014 uh, Silicon Valley, Palo Alto version. And I just think it's really interesting to see because Mike Judge actually did work in software development in the 1980s. And so he's able to pull from his his personal experience in addition to all of the consultants in order to come up with uh, this satirical take on Silicon Valley. We will definitely be coming back and watching seasons two through six oh, yay. to catch up on this afterwards i'm excited but in the meantime thanks for listening to work of fiction please make sure to subscribe so that you don't miss an episode and leave us a rating so we can know how we're doing want to learn more visit us at work of thank you so much thanks